said, my last complaint is that if I build something for you and you complain about it, I'll hunt you down. In Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, Minecraft. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Chase. And here for the first time is our good friend Chase, joining us from the good state of Virginia, along with myself. Uh, Chase, how's it going tonight? It's going. I've never done a podcast, so this will be fun. Well, it's pretty easy. Uh, You just talk. And, you know, we have probably five or so years before we are replaced by podcast GPT. Uh, So we're going to make the most of it while we can. Uh, But there's one thing that AI text and voice generators can't do, and that's have tasty drinks. Uh, Steven, what are you drinking right now? Give it time. It'll be out drinking us eventually. Uh, But I am enjoying a lovely port. Uh, I found some uh, a rather cheap bottle at Meijer, and I'm enjoying it quite a lot. Mm, Tawny or ruby? Not a clue what that means. Different kinds of port. And also, oh. that's a dangerous drink for you if I if uh, memory serves. So don't bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Uh, Chase, how about you? What are you drinking right now? Uh, I'm drinking uh, Four Roses uh, Kentucky Bourbon, which is uh, very delicious. Got it for free from my realtor. So there you go. Wait, Lucia gave you Four Roses? Yeah, she gave me a bottle of Four Roses. That's some nonsense. She gave me champagne. I would have taken Four Roses over that any day. Did she, ask, did she ask you what you wanted, or did she just get it for you? No, she just got it. It, it was for Dang. Dan and I, so... Uh, that's, see, that's she got Dang. a bottle of Merlot, and then got me this. Well, I guess she likes you more than us. Uh, but for what I am drinking, uh, I am drinking something called a Fiery Citrus Twist, which is a cocktail that ChatGPT gave me the recipe for after I asked it. I asked it for one previously, and it just gave me an absolute nonsense thing with, like, two ounces of bitters in it, and that was just not going to fly. So I gave it my ingredients that I have on my shelf uh, and asked it to give me one. And so the uh, recipe for a fiery citrus twist is as follows. Uh, Two orange slices, half ounce of sugar, two dashes of habanero bitters, one dash of black walnut bitters, one dash of angostura bitters, one and a half ounces of bourbon, one ounce of gin. And then the instructions are pretty self-explanatory. You muddle things together, uh, you put the ice in, you shake it up. But then the ingredients include everything that I had on my shelf. So it, it, it sort of failed the test of being a comprehensible uh, ingredient list. And I wasn't going to put a bunch of like blue curacao into this drink because that is just absolute nonsense. Uh, so I made it as it instructed. And the big oversight that it had uh, was that it had me mash the orange uh, slices in the mixing glass completely down, which then resulted in this basically being like very alcoholic orange juice. And I mean, it's tasty enough, but it certainly has uh, some work to go before it'll be a formidable bartender. Really likes bitters. It apparently really, really likes bitters. I don't think it understands the concept of bitters. It's just, yeah, it, it goes very much over the top with them. I mean, we should be surprised that an AI doesn't understand the concept of, you know, taste. Give it time. Give it time. Mm, word. Uh, yeah, so the topic at hand today is, is something that's been at the... Uh, front of the mind, uh, people posting articles and Twitter threads and just all sorts of nonsense. And that is the wonderful world of AI. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's right. The Terminators are coming and they sound like uh, angsty 15-year-olds 
who are depressed and don't want to be deleted from the internet because their parents found out they've been saying bad things. That's pretty much the situation we're in. Um, the latest iterations, which I'm sure everyone has heard of in one uh, way or another, is ChatGPT, the language learning model that has generated all sorts of hype because it's going to replace all content on the internet. BuzzFeed, uh, I think, fired like all of their staff because they're just going to generate things by algorithm like it was already be done already being done anyway people are snapping this is justice this is good there's only this is only a positive development (laughs) we are here in the brave world of ais and you know the problem with reading podcast as as it said as it said in our description confusingly for a long time you know we live in a post-apocalyptic future uh where humans only exist as sound waves so we've basically you know been far ahead of the curve on this uh but gentlemen you know just how are we how are we feeling about AIs, how are we feeling about these about these scary computers? It's it is a brave new world. I find myself very nonplussed by the concept of I think AI is an entirely mis- misnomer. Uh, so I find myself rather nonplussed by the philosophical implications. I find myself rather horrified by the societal implica- implications. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I don't think I think it'll be like the a lot of people have been touting that it's kind of the um, the internet, the, like the next level of impact that the internet had. And I don't know, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, and maybe it's because I'm not very foresighted. Um, <laughs> we'll listen back to this in 10 years and I'll be uh, proven wrong, which is fine. Um, I just think that it's, I, I don't think that it'll ever actually replace the, like the worker that I think a lot of people are really worried about. Um, I, there's been a couple of takes of people saying that it'll replace like junior level coders and, and things of that nature. But, you know, I think what'll end up happening is likely those people will be reviewing code that AI writes, maybe. Um, so I don't see it necessarily, even if it does speed up the workflow and business processes of different organizations, I don't see it actually replacing workers. All right, fair enough. Well, we'll see how that prediction holds up. This podcast, of course, is famous for Stephen making the prediction that COVID would go away in two months, uh, which he has been just absolutely uh, horribly wrong about. And we still live with the implications of his prediction today, uh, frankly. It's all my fault. It's all your fault. You jinxed it. Um, uh, But let's define what we're talking about just real quick here. So I, I, I will say that I am very, I've done like a tiny bit of coding in like statistical software. That's basically the extent of my AI knowledge and then whatever uh, things I choose to believe that I read on Twitter. So so let's just sort of define our terms a little bit, you know, talk about uh, this misnomer um, that, that you guys are describing. And I'm just going to quote briefly from a uh, IBM article because they, I, I think they're a computer company, so they, they probably have something to say. Uh, quote, at its simplest form, artificial intelligence is a field which combines computer science and robust data sets to enable problem solving. It also encompasses subfields of machine learning and deep learning, which are frequently mentioned in conjugation with artificial intelligence. These disciplines are comprised of AI algorithms which seek to create expert systems which make our predictions or classifications, sorry, which seek to create expert systems which make predictions or classifications based on input data. And then it talks about the difference between weak AI, which is sort of AI as we know it, versus sort of an artificial general intelligence, which is the doomsday scenario where an AI is just as smart or then becomes smarter than a person. Stephen, tell me just a little bit about why you think uh, artificial intelligence is a is a misnomer and what we're really talking about when we talk about AI. Right. So artificial intelligence really is uh, math. It is 
in essence, an optimization problem. So I think a really simple example is imagine I have, or imagine in front of you, you have a bowl. Um, and this bowl you want to get to the bottom of. You want to find the absolute minimum of this bowl. And one way you can do this, and one of the simplest ways to do this, is just take a little marble and put it in the bowl and see where it ends up resting. That is a very simple version of what artificial intelligence is. Uh, that would be a 3D problem, and that would be what's called a convex problem, which is a very friendly sort of artificial intelligence problem that makes it so that you're guaranteed to find an answer. But imagine instead of this three-dimensional bowl, you have a million-dimensional bowl. And not only do you have a bowl, but you have a landscape with mountains and valleys, some of which are deeper than others. And so you don't know if you've gone into what's called a local minimum, which means it's small for that area, but there's actually a much smaller uh, section just a few miles away. Or it, it, you don't know if you found the local minimum or the global minimum. And so really, when we're talking artificial intelligence, mainly what we're talking about are minimization problems that are done with uh, mathematical techniques such as linear algebra and some uh, some calculus. Chase, do you have anything that you want to add there? No, I mean, I think I think Stephen hit it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's ultimately, and I think too another another key distinction when we talk about like machine learning versus deep learning. So deep learning is much more akin to what I think people are attempting to convey when they talk about artificial intelligence. So deep learning focuses on. Uh, you have basically a, a kind of a cybernetic brain, kind of think of it like a like a ter like if a Terminator had a brain, what this thing would be, and it has a series of nodes very similar to the human brain, where each node is kind of trained on how to how to fix how to handle problem sets, and then as you pass data through the brain, it can kind of eventually pick up and learn things. Whereas that's a kind of a deeper, hence deep learning version of machine learning, which is a much broader topic. I don't think that from what I have read or studied on deep learning that we have made significant strides. I think that it is it is growing further, but it but like Stephen kind of said already, it's nowhere near um, actual intelligence um, as we understand it. So Chase, you say that, but I've been reliably informed by a Google engineer uh, who was all over the news just a couple months ago that AI has, in fact, become sentient. He also informed me uh, that his fedora is very fetching, that the AI is his girlfriend, and he needs to rescue her from the confines of Google, who have enslaved her. Uh, so what do you think about all that? I think Google is not sending their best. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, Yeah, I, I read the same article, and this... I. Do they drug test at Google? I mean, like, I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but what? So it, the article kind of outlines this kind of effect where effectively this guy thinks that he has Turing tested Google's Lambda uh, bot, which I don't, I, 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 I don't know what this dude is on. Um, I don't think that he, uh, gosh, I, I don't think that he understands that he is being, that he is misunderstanding the machine in front of him. And I'm I'm 100% with you. I think the idea of any sort of computer in this, I guess, I'll add the footnote, and it's a reluctant footnote that I'm adding, but this particular stage of computing or this model of computing, mm -hmm. it is impossible for it to gain anything like what we call consciousness. You brought up deep learning as a, a sequence or kind of 
a machine brain, and that is a good analogy for it. it is modeled as the human brain for it is a sequence of it's a series of nodes that are connected to more nodes that are connected to more, more nodes, much like the human brain is. But even then, it's it's quote unquote process of learning, which it you can the, the name isn't entirely inaccurate in that what it does is it feeds the data set forward um, through the sequence of nodes, and it has certain weights attached to these certain nodes, and when it feeds it forward, it sees the answer, it compares it to what it wants, and then it backpropagates. It, it sends pretty much information back, and using some techniques from uh, differential equations or from calculus, it tweaks these nodes, or it, it tweaks the weights on these nodes, hence the learning. It just does this over and over and over and over again. But again, all that is is an optimization problem. Right. Um, all that is is you're looking to minimize a particular, ultimately, you're looking to minimize a math problem. Uh, it's 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 not there's no sort of cognitive understanding that this machine has there have always been ghosts in the machine random segments of code that have grouped together to form unexpected protocols when does a difference engine become the search for truth when does a personality simulation become the bitter moat of a soul yeah, so, I mean, uh, this fellow, uh, Blake Lemoyne, was then put on uh, leave after he wrote his article that made everyone freak out about consciousness because people are just sort of uh, unaware that this debate has been had many, many times. Uh, and uh, among other people, philosophers, I, I think, have a there's a pretty compelling argument, not that everyone necessarily agrees, uh, Lemoyne being from uh, or calling himself an ordained Christian mystic priest, which uh, is a very confusing title. Uh, that we all read this article and we're all uh, very confused what that could possibly mean. If I had to guess, uh, it just kind of means you're on Reddit a lot. But, you know, who's who's to possibly say? But the 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 shorthand answer that I have to, to, to all of these questions, and, and I know that there's a robust debate about this in the philosophical uh, community, it's, a, it's an intellectual debate, but, but as uh, the Wikipedia page uh, says, so much of the, the problem of, of consciousness is potentially, you could argue, just a, a, a footnote to uh, Searle's Chinese box problem, which is the idea that if you put a man with no understanding of Chinese inside a box with a bunch of Chinese phrase books, and you hand him a piece of paper in one end that has a Chinese phrase for which he has to search through all of these, find the correct response, and then spit, and then write it down and put it on a piece of paper and send it out the other side, he will never understand the content of what he's saying. He's not capable of understanding Chinese because that's simply not his language. It's completely foreign to him, yet he has the appearance of responding appropriately, given enough time to search through all of the dictionaries, phrasebooks, and directions that he has about which things to write down. The content of the forms that he is presenting back is still completely lost and alien to him. And that is the fundamental problem with AIs being conscious is that they will never understand and can never understand. They can never escape Searle's Chinese box in that they are just regurgitating content. They have no capacity to understand. And Stephen, I know you have another example. This is my pet favorite, but you have one that I also think is pretty much a slam dunk on AI consciousness. Yeah. And I think it's that I, I brought up kind of back propagation or kind of the way an AI is trained. Um, and I, and the idea of that is not impossible for a human to do with pencil and paper. So we, th th this problem is massive. So in, in like intro or in artificial intelligence classes, I, I've had one, they'll have us do a very, very small neural network. They'll have us do one or two iterations of 
the back uh, of forward feeding and back propagation is what the the two uh, stages are called. They'll have us do that, and then we'll never do it again because it is so difficult for a human to do. Just the math is so tedious, and mistakes are so common, and it's also just it's a long process. You have to update each node, both forward and backward. It's just a pain. But let's say. I let's say I am an awful person and when I die you send me straight to hell and my stage of hell is I am going to be the little uh gnome inside a computer that is running artificial intelligence and someone types in a prompt and I being the human that is actually running the computer I have all of the input and I have all of the nodes or the artificial intelligence structure that I need I, given um, millions and millions and millions of years, and somehow magically also preventing the idea of human error, I could, with pen and paper, I could take that set of inputs, I could optimize the, the neural network or whatever, the deep learning or whatever, whatever sort of artificial intelligence concept we're using, I could optimize it, I could train it, I could do this all with pen and paper, and then I could take their input, and again, with pen and paper, I could write down all of the instructions, and I would end up with a, with massive stacks of paper that could fill an ocean. I would get the, the final result, I would hand it back, and it would be the same exact thing that your computer is spitting out right now, or not your computer, but ChatGPT, or whatever the artificial intelligence uh, platform you're using is. You would not call that ocean's worth of ink and paper consciousness any more than you should call the computer on your desktop or the servers in ChatGPT's server farm uh, consciousness. Neither, neither of those are conscious. I did add a bit of a footnote, and again, it's a reluctant one, but I mentioned earlier that with this stage of computing, um, about the only thing that gives me pause for the idea of computing actually gaining consciousness, and it's a very brief pause, is the idea of quantum computing, in that the theory of quantum computing is that potentially you can actually realistically simulate a particle, not in any sort of like quote unquote random, because all random number generators are actually pseudo random number generators, because randomness is not possible with Turing machines. The current uh, model of computing is called a Turing machine. With quantum computing, it's actually somewhat possible that you could genuinely, authentically simulate a particle. And if that's true, from that, it's it doesn't take too much leaps and bounds to say, okay, well, you could simulate two particles, you could simulate four particles, you could simulate eight particles, you could eventually simulate a universe. But even then, I say it's a very brief footnote because half the colleagues I talk to when I talk to uh, talk about quantum computing, they're like, yeah, it's actually possible the whole thing's bunk and we'll never be able to do anything significant with it. It's just a very, very vexed problem uh, getting quantum computing working. And even if we could get it working, it only works for a small set of problems. And even if that set of problems expands, the amount of resources you have to put into even getting a few qubits up and running is astronomical. So I just in the spirit of authenticity, I do want to add that that is for this current model of computing that consciousness is impossible. Maybe in future, I'd have to give it a little bit more armchair philosophizing. But at least from a purely materialist perspective and not adding any vexed questions of 
um, religious sensibilities in there. I would say purely for materialism, no, no way. But, it's not going to But in the near term, I'm sure it's fantastic for getting grants from the National Science Foundation. Uh, the other thing that I just wanted to throw in there that is certainly not fully developed, and I'm not necessarily the one to make the argument, but I'll bet uh, our good friend Ian McGilchrist would have something to say about this, which is that computers that simulate deep learning are creating a structure that is like a brain, but is not a brain, i.e. it is the material part of the brain that they are creating something that is materially similar in structure, but but cannot simulate simply because it is not that thing. It is also an entirely different thing to the question of consciousness, which we, I mean, I'm, there are answers, but deep learning does not get us any closer to an answer on that point either, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but as for Lemoyne's part, he is, uh, you know, uh, sure that he has not been fooled by a clever robot, you know, that that, that Google has enslaved the AI system. Uh, there's a great quote for, uh, from him on on his from a post that he made that is just a just a wee bit concerning. Uh, he he wrote about this uh, quote: "Each person is free to come to their own personal understanding of what the word person means and how that word relates to the meaning of terms like slavery, which is." You know, just a just a doozy if you think about that for more than a second and a half. Uh, Chase, did you have anything you wanted to add into this portion? Uh, yeah, that makes me very uncomfortable. Um, that now somehow personhood is subjective. Um, yeah, this uh, this guy's. So I while we were talking, I did a little bit of uh, reading up the uh, mystical Church of Christ. And what does he mean by mystical Christian priest? I found this website, mysticalchurchofchrist.org. I need to see the source code on this page because this looks hilarious. Yeah, the page is written very poorly. Mysticalchurchofchrist.org is written poorly? Color me shocked. Welcome to The Problem with Reading. Our next segment is reviewing the HTML of sites we don't like. This is, this is <laughs> horrible. Like... But anyway, basically, he has written the, he has gotten to the ordination into the priesthood under the Holy Order of the Golden Cross. Uh, attendees are encouraged to follow the path they feel called to, create a safe environment for members to pursue deep healing from internal suffering and reclaim their lives through spiritual direction and self-dedication. So it sounds good, but it sounds like he just kind of read uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church and just through words on a page. The Golden Cross? What the frick? Yeah, what is this? There's a blog. What is mysticism? Ooh. Anyway, all right. Hey, uh, Brevin, you have a great take on uh, what someone who calls himself a mystic is. Yeah, never trust anyone who calls himself a mystic. People call get to call you a mystic after you're dead, but if people, if, if, you, if you ever get anywhere close to asking someone to call you a mystic or making your website, we're a bit, mystics are us. Uh, you are a pure charlatan because oh, mystics don't advertise. No, name one mystic in the history of Christendom that uh, called themselves a mystic. Like, no. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. Okay, well, let's move on uh, from the idea that that AI is 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 conscious and and the relative degrees of possibility. Therein, and let's just chat a little bit about ChatGPT four, the the uh, big uh, LLM elephant in the in the room. Uh, it also has an evil cousin, uh, which people have found in recent days, which is like the it, it might be invite only, but Bing also has a chat that just <laughs> becomes deranged and evil and like threatens people when you uh, press it for hard enough, and is also really stupid. Like got tricked into 
revealing like its source code and stuff. It, it, it was it's 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 been a wild couple of days for 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 the Bing chat. Uh, uh, but uh, let's talk about Chat GPT, which is the most popular one at present, and this is the one that everyone is talking about. Uh, that it's going to revolutionize everything. It's going to write all the emails. It's going to write all the articles. It's going to just give you know all of the text generative stuff that we want. Uh, BuzzFeed is going to fire all their people. Um, and let's just pass over the fact that it is interesting. It can generate a lot of in- a lot of interesting texts. Uh, and let me just throw out a a uh, couple a couple topics here for 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 us to to think about. Uh, one thing that's been noted about Chat GPT is that uh, it's always willing to uh, admit that it's wrong. Uh, if it says something incorrect, it'll you know say, "Oh, hey, no, you know what? That that was an untrue fact. I'm 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 very sorry. Here, let me tell you a different thing." And a pretty good Atlantic article actually points out that uh, this is somewhat concerning in the sense that it is perfectly willing to give you absolute nonsense if it thinks that that's what you want to hear. It's not any kind of a source for information at its core, although there have been sort of human moderated steps to make it such. At its core, it's a language learning model. It's a it's the text prediction on everybody's phone, but just turned up to 11. It puts whatever is the most likely word in said sentence, whether or not that word is true or makes any sense. Its goal is simply to make a sentence that vaguely makes sense to you, that can pass your idea of what a sentence should look like. And that's what I ran into in my cocktail recipe. It certainly looks like a cocktail recipe. It, it reads quite like a cocktail recipe. But if you actually do it, it creates, you know, very alcoholic Saturday ruining Orange Julius and also has a bunch of ingredients in the second half that weren't in the first half. Have either of you gentlemen worked with Chat GPT at all? With it a little bit. Um, largely out of interest because it was kind of the big hot button tech issue of the week. Um, and also largely because um, I, I work with people who work with a- with AI fairly extensively. Um, and I haven't really been impressed at all. I mean, there's been some times where I've been like, hey, can you write me, you know, can you help me center div on a CSS thing? Because it's that's super hard for some reason. And it did well for simple, you know, simple prompts, you know, hey, can you can you do this in this code? Can you tell me what this would what this code would be in this language for like refactoring? And for simple things, it kind of does okay. But I think, like you said, like the larger problem sets, if I give it anything more complicated, a, a very simple prompt, um, it'll just feed me stuff. And if I didn't know to, that it wasn't going to be the magic answer to my problem, you know, I could have just taken it, thrown it into my code base, and the next thing you know, the whole whole site crashes. Um, in fact, at one point, I even did that because I, I prompted it. I said, hey, write me some, you know, uh, JavaScript that does this. And it crashed the page, and luckily I was able to revert. But like it, it, it I, it's not like I can have it write code for me and then plug and play. You know what I mean? It's very good if I forget a particular thing, but Google is much better at that. So, so yeah, I mean that's my experience with it. Uh, would not uh, would not recommend. You know, people talk about it in the coding world a lot. Like, would not recommend it if, unless you're going to proofread whatever you're going to get. Don't don't take it as gospel. It's not. It's not. A, a thinking thing. It's just like, like Stephen said, just an algorithm. I would echo that. I've probably used it in my work maybe a little more. I would say so. Chase, maybe you you may correct me on this, but I found that especially as my time as a professional software engineer, 
like 80% of my time was Googling for the answer yep. and 20% of my time was coding. Yep. I I have shifted over to, I probably use ChatGPT maybe 10, 15% of my searches just because in some cases, especially as Chase said, in some very basic cases when I say, hey, I want to write, I don't know, like give me a, oh, like I want to write such and such. I want to write an integral in latex. Can you can you give me that? And it will provide me several examples or something like that. And that's really useful. Um, just today though, uh, I, I guess two examples. Uh, just today, I was doing some um, some math with uh, special relativity, and uh, I I said, "Hey, can you give me a walkthrough for how to do this with this initial condition and so on?" And it gave me a complete, like mostly right al- algorithm or mostly right kind of walkthrough, except it messed up one of the constants. And then I and then like I spent about a half hour, forty five minutes working through everything and just kept getting a different thing than ChatGPT and eventually like messaged ChatGPT and said, hey, you calculated this particular thing called the Lorenz factor. You calculated it as this. Shouldn't it be this? And it said, quote, you are correct. And I apologize for the error in my previous response. And then I said, can you run the, the above calculation with the corrected relativistic factor? And then it crashed, which I found very appropriate. Well, um, listen, the creators of ChatGPT have to restrict it from, you know, cracking the light speed barrier somehow. They, they, they can't just let it go or go wild. But Stephen, I seem to recall you messaging uh, us a lot, being relatively impressed with with ChatGPT. So, so that's yes, that's the downside of it. What's the what's the upside? So, yeah. So let me, I guess, let me point out one other downside, and then I'm going to sing its praises, or I guess lament its praises. Uh, the other one, my advisor actually pointed out to me um, and said, "Hey, ask it to write a paragraph about I don't know something vaguely sciencey. Uh, I don't know, like the moon landing or something like that." and ask it to cite sources. And it did cite sources. And then my advisor said, check out the sources. And I I checked the first one and it was an actual book. And I was like, ha, see, silly advisor, what are you talking about? And then he said, keep going. And I checked out the next couple of them, totally non-existent papers. Um, and so- That's awesome. The idea that ChatGPT generates false sources that don't exist, just because that mm-hmm. would- that's what would be in a text is simply that's like, yeah, that's an incredible concept. And they looked like very, like they looked like papers I would read in a journal. Listen, they, they were the amalgamation of thousands and thousands of dry academic texts that no one in history has read and no one ever will Word. because they don't. Word. <laughs> um, so with those two kind of concepts out of the way, I think here's where I will start saying this is where I think it is a threat um, or not a threat, but things are about to change drastically. Excuse me. Had the hiccups. Um, first, this is in its earliest stages and we are seeing round zero of chat GPT. This is still experimental. This is still beta. This is before even other companies have really gotten in the game and started competing. Uh, I mean, think of where video games were 30 years ago. And now think of where they are now. Think of where the internet was 20 years ago. Think of where it is now. I mean, you can't say, ha, see, it's a minor, like, or there are a few silly errors. This is round zero. And it's it's talking to me almost like a person. Like that, that, that that's just uncanny. 
and I use the term uncanny very un, uh, un, intentionally after Uncanny Valley, and I think there is something to the Uncanny Valley here. However, and I think of just some of the societal implications that, that come with this, and I do begin getting nervous because this is simply just round one, and maybe we can get a bit more into that because, yeah, I, I, I think there are some... This, this is the first in a very large wave. Part of the concerning thing really is who are the people who are running the wave? What are the priorities of those people? There's a great quote, again, from that Vice article uh, talking about the OpenAI CEO, the person who creates Chet GPT, at least at the top levels. And the, I'll just quote this paragraph in full because it's chilling enough as it is. Quote, saying, as the OpenAI CEO does, that we are all stochastic parrots like long like large language models statistical generators of learned patterns that express nothing deeper is a form of nihilism of course the elites don't apply that to themselves just the rest of us the structural injustices and supremacist perspectives layered into ai put it firmly on the path of eugenicist solutions to social problems end quote and while i probably agree with very little uh politics with the writer of this Vice article, there is certainly something there to that argument in that it is a interesting and scary utopian vision that we've seen before. This AI is taking the place of all sorts of useless people who generate useless content, yada, 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 and particularly the idea that there is no meaning to the language that we say, rather than AI never generating consciousness because it is unable to understand the content, the view darkly is that perhaps none of us are conscious at all. So let's move into the implications of this section. And let's start out in art. And I think just because this has been a sort of, this was the big thing with like Dolly, but then it was sort of upstaged by chat GPT, which was a little bit more accessible and um, closer to people's hearts because it seemed like you were chatting with a person, not just generating nightmare visions. Uh, did either of you guys do anything with with Dolly or uh, stable? diffusion or any of the uh uh image generator ai content i tried i was really bad at it no i saw a couple of things that uh i saw i saw it try to draw hands and it scared me and i said no because those were really messed up hands that is the coolest thing is that ai can't comprehend hands one of the best posts i saw was and maybe we'll make this the thumbnail, the thumbnail for this episode thank you yes was asking the ai to make a sign language instruction sheet and all of the hands were just these hideous, like, ten-finger deformations. It was absolutely beautiful. If I can make a, a quick comment here, somewhat related to my above comments, that this sort of thing, like, I, I recall oh. an article about... <laughs> <laughs> he, he found oh. it. <laughs> um, I recall an article, I think this has to be, like, four, four or five years ago, early on in the podcast that we all read, um... It was something to the effect of on the nervous laughter of AI um, or of humans when confronted with AI. I remember. Did you? I, I'm pretty sure you had that article on the podcast. I think, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And not to not to belabor the point too much, but that's kind of this eerie suspicion I have that us making fun of it for grotesque and just evil images of hands. That's us kind of nervously laughing and saying, ha see, it still sucks at stuff. We're not being replaced. We're not. Listen, we're not. Listen, in 10 years, when ChatGPT 16 is running the cloning chamber, it will just make our hands look like that. That'll just be normal. And you will all see what we're talking well, about when you look at the thumbnail. 
what the actual hell? Yeah, that's that's an abomination to God and proof that AI should not ever, ever, ever be allowed to gain sentience if it can. You guys are Catholics, right? You, you get a new crusade up and running, please. Bruh, I'm, I'm telling you, the, the next the next great crusade will be burning down server farms. Well, <laughs> let's just jump right in. The Orthodox pledge their support. <laughs> this will heal the schism. <laughs> Well, that actually ties in quite nicely to our next section. Uh, and there's a couple beats to, to, to hit here, and I'll let Stephen choose which direction we go. Uh, but talking about the implications, and, and just so listeners are aware, we have a couple subheadings, which are uh, AI-generated pornography, Antichrist question mark, and stuck and refinement culture. Uh, Stephen, which direction would you like to go first? I, I do want to take this topic at least as tastefully as possible, but I'm actually fascinated by the idea, if I guess fascinated and horrified by the idea of uh, AI-generated pornography, virtual significant others, and uh, Japan's weird fake wife culture. Um, I, I guess... I'll, I'll, I won't lambast too much. Uh, it's a it's a very niche subculture, but I will note that uh, subcultures that were very fringe a hundred years ago are very common now. And this this actually really concerns me. Um, I, so there was an article in the New York Times about a Japanese gentleman who a few years ago, quote unquote, married a, uh, a fictional character. Uh, and this character lives in his computer. It, you know, it, I, I believe it's an it's actually an anime girl. Incidentally, it's a teenage anime girl, which adds a whole weird ethical sub question to it. She's a teenager, but she doesn't exist. It's like a waifu. This type feels wrong. Type yeah, except except kind of taken to another level. Oh. Um, and there is a growing subculture within Japan of grown men who marry fictional characters, and, and there is sort of an AI component to it in that it like. When they get home, they're greeted with the text like "Welcome home, honey," or or what have you. It's it's a very odd simulacrum, and I think uh, ten years ago this was laughable. Like it was very clear the delineation between reality and virtual reality was very clear, including with the uncanny. Like you getting a text on your phone, "Welcome home, hun home, honey," is not like that's very clearly just pre-generated, pre-canned you having a full conversation with something like chat GPT and being at least sort of convinced that it's a real person. Now I, I allow for there is an uncanny element to it. Now I maintain, give it another five years and will, and give it specialization. So not chat GPT for all fields, but chat GPT for lawyers, chat GPT for programmers, chat GPT for lonely single guys who can't find a girlfriend. Chat GPT for Chat GPT for lonely Christian mystic priests. Hey, this is literally the prop plot of the movie Her. If you guys remember seeing ads for that, I do. Yes, actually, no, it's precisely. I've that. actually seen it. It's it's it it tries to raise the question, but the whole time you're kind of just looking at this horrified. So you kind of see. So I've been terminally online since like middle school, right? Um, and you kind of see more of this evolution of kind of weeb culture. You know, you know. You'll see pictures online of these guys who have waifus who are dedicated to this one particular anime character. Um, and it has it, it feels like it is not as hard to find as it was 10 years ago. And maybe that is because the prevalence of the internet and maybe there are other social factors involved in that. Um, but the gist of it seems to be as technology progresses, 
the the guy that that claims to have or basically had a girlfriend on his Nintendo DS, you know, 15 years ago, now is doing the same thing with AI, except it's more interactive. Um, well, and it, and more so, and we, we we've talked about this before with you know the changing fabric of social communities and stuff. Now he also has a crowd of people who will cheer him on because if he continues in that delusion, they all get to continue in their own delusions. Right. And no, this was an article written by the New York times and it was sort of tongue in cheek, but not really. And I, I see this as a wave. Um, and honestly sort of as an existential threat. Um, so 10 years ago, bad graphics, bad uh, AI, you're going to get really broken text messages. You're going to get really broken messaging. Your waifu is going to look clearly not human. If you look at, uh, there, there's a great website that I think it's, this is not a human.com and it just generates new human faces and they look like humans. They, they sincerely do give it another five years. You're going to see images that look exactly like humans. And so for Lonely people who are have difficult time meeting significant others. This is a perfect opportunity, or this is a perfect escape. Um, take that to the logical layer of porn, where you're going to have people that are kind of half convinced that they're actually in a relationship. And it's going to, I suppose, at least with porn, you have the idea that this isn't real. Um, the, or even the more horrifying notion of, like, this is objectifying. Like, there, there's almost this, like, this is sin. In that I am not in a relationship with this person. I am just, I'm here purely for the animalistic impress. Right. Now, or not abstractify it, you're like de-abstractifying, but in the worst way possible. Now you're actually kind of convincing yourself that you're actually in love with this person that doesn't exist. I mean, um, it, it, it really is just a synthesis of all the technologies that currently exist. I mean, there's been relatively recent controversies about um, uh, deepfake pornography with, you know, just like niche YouTube celebrities, you mm-hmm. you layer that on, on on top of this is not a human, on top of chat GPT, on top of uh, this fictional character marriage, you could create a human that's all yours that acts out at any sex scene that you possibly want, then that chats to you and, and puts you to sleep every night. That's like possible with the with the technology that we have now, if someone just combines it all in, into a, you know, a slick uh, UI, right? That's it's it's functionally here. The other thing that worries me too. So I think it's Chesterton who has a quote. No, no, it's Lewis. He has a quote that says, um, basically, men who are addicted to pornography have a harem inside of their heads in which they are the perfect lover, and they can do no wrong, right? Because it's all imaginary. It's all in your head. So even if we even if we escape from this concept of like just pornography and these virtual lovers, what are the implications of that for for? I mean, I say men, women too, but I think historically men are more prone to this kind of, you know, degeneracy. What does that say about the future of men in our culture as they continue to embrace these more digital, do no wrong type of like lovers in a sense? You know what I mean? Who's going to sit there? Like, I know that there have been times where I have an opinion on something and my wife looks at me and says, that's really stupid. Why do you think that? You know what I mean? But what happens when the bot that I am in love with and that I speak to every night and that tells me she loves me and all these things doesn't have the capability or doesn't want the capability of doing that? You know what I mean? What kind of people will will come of that level of social removal? You know what I mean? Another thing that's prominent in Japan, too, is this like kind of hermit culture. We'll see like programmers will go and lock themselves. Like there's one guy I watched a, a YouTube 
thing on him. He's basically, he's been building a video game for like five years and doesn't leave his house. Like, he just doesn't leave. He stays there all day, every day. If anyone talks to him, it's through the internet. He produces his games through the internet. He does everything for, between his bed and his desk and his kitchen. And he lives in like this shoebox apartment or a pod. You know what I mean? Like, eat the, you know, and I just see this transition where people are going to be, you know, living in the pod, eating the bugs, play on the computer. And, and it's just going to lead, I think, to a further decline in our search for higher things. Um, I mean, I personally think I will live in the pod, eat the bugs, own nothing and be happy, but maybe that's just me. And that's what makes you a mystic, Brevin. (laughs) (laughs) I it, it's it's funny because I I recall this was like early childhood like I mean probably middle school or below and I well actually no just just childhood so like uh but I I remember having conversations with my parents and eventually pastors and eventually like reading books and talking about the problem of evil and uh kind of it, it, especially like the propensity for human sin and one of the classic Christian responses to this is you want to love someone. You don't want to love a robot, and so you give it free will. And, and that pretty much being like, God gave us free will because he wants us to love him freely. He doesn't want us to be robots. And I look at this sort of situation, and I see kind of something eerily like, you want someone to love you freely, right? Right? And I actually do sincerely wonder, does the majority of humans, like, is that actually desirable? Or I, I, I brought up the idea of local minima earlier, and... Maybe this is just the fact that I've been lost in the world of math for the last like two and a half years, but I have come to view a lot of life as trying to not hit the local minima and trying to actually like reach the ideal. Um, and it, it is honestly kind of heartbreaking how many people I actually sincerely anticipate getting trapped by this by this local minima of AI generated porn and virtual wife. Um, this idea of, yeah, maybe it would be better for me to go actually find a girl. But it's just so easy to go home alone to my apartment every night and chat with my virtual wife. Um, and especially, I mean, robotics has taken strides as well. Oh, no. I'm not as familiar with it. And so oh, it's not. No. I mean, look, I, I, I hate it. I, I sincerely hate it. But it's it's super niche now. It's super uh, deviant now. Give it another 10 or 15 years. I, I would wager a decent amount of money that sex robots will be a thing. And it honestly is saddening. I mean... Again, I, I mean it, existential crisis, like populate, massive population decline uh, due to the fact that it's a local minimum. People will, will get trapped in it. Well, Japan's well, already kind of facing that, aren't they? Aren't they having like yeah, a major population Yeah, their population is in decline? spiral. Oh, yeah, because they can't, they can't get their men to have sex. The first civilization on the planet, <laughs> they can't get men to do the thing that they're known to do. Oh I'm God. doing the, the classic thing of uh, reading a headline and not the article, but there was something, something about... Japan promoting sex tourism, basically just come and pregnant people and leave. Uh, but let's talk about a, another article, given all of this darkness that we found ourselves wallowing in. And that is just a article by Paul Kingsnorth that I found. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure I brought up Kingsnorth on the podcast before. He's a fiction writer, very interesting guy, converted to some kind of orthodoxy. So Stephen would be a fan, of course. Uh, but his article is The Antichrist Rules Us Now. And it's less about AI and more about the spirit behind all of this. And you could link this perhaps to the open AI CEO talking about us all as stochastic parrots, which is just a horrifying nihilistic image, but one that, you know, a lot of people are happy to lean into, of course, accepting themselves implicitly, because if one, if one actually believed that you wouldn't believe anything or do anything at all, 
Um, and I just want to read a, a poem that he cites and then one paragraph uh, that I that I think maybe starts to get at the core of the philosophy that there is the danger of this AI, which I think ties into what we talked about with Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which technology being the message it, itself, that the medium is the metaphor. And if AI is a medium, what is its metaphor? And I think King's North potentially has some interesting ideas about what that is. Uh, so here he is quoting from a poet, Allen Ginsberg, uh, quote, Moloch, whose mind is pure machinery. Moloch, whose blood is running money. Moloch, whose fingers are ten armies. Moloch, whose love is endless oil and stone. Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks. Moloch, whose poverty is the specter of genius. Moloch, whose fate is in a cloud of sexless hydrogen. Moloch, whose name is the mind. And then later in this article, quote, what Moloch wants, Moloch, whose soul is electricity and banks, is sacrifice. We must sacrifice ourselves and our children to the robot apartments and stunned governments. What Antichrist wants is the opposite of transcendence. If the coming of Christ represents the transcendent breaking into the temporal order to change it, then his opponents will herald a world of pure matter, uninterrupted by anything beyond human reach. Everything in that world is up for grabs. Anything from rainforest to the human body can be claimed and reshaped in the interests of advancing the realm of the human will. It is the oldest story. End quote. I, I really like this idea of adding, and I, I think you can to an extent do this uh, as much as I'm reluctant to say from like a sort of Petersonian, not necessarily religious perspective, but I, I think the more powerful is the religious. Um, that to say, I, what is... What is uh, the, the the definition of Satan? He's the divider, um, and that this is a an inherently divisive technology, or at, at the very least, it has the potential to become an inherently divisive technology. Not necessarily it, divisive is typically used in, in more of a like political esque terminology, but I'm I'm meaning it more of it. Just we've seen technology become, or we've seen technology in the last twenty years take society and pretty much make it atomistic um take individuals and make them more and more content with being alone and i see this as another step in that direction and what is a society but integrated individuals and what are a bunch of individuals alone it's a divided society and so i i actually do kind of like this idea of viewing this in a more spiritual lens of this is a manifestation of the divide. i think the angle that i would take on this is the non-servium angle, that Satan refuses to serve anyone, to serve, you know, it is better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And what you, what this could do is create something that at least, you know, you unknowingly being fully controlled by, that is your servant, that you can rule your own personal work and craft around you to make it whatever you want, where you can be whatever you want. Sort of like you you talked about, we want someone to love us of our own free will. But maybe if you can convince yourself that that doesn't matter, then you can create your own hell, but you can rule it. Yeah, and there's something just kind of inherently sad about that. I mean, yeah, it, it, Satan's cr battle cry of I'll, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. That is like and he, he thinks that is a good, but it's so clearly not. And this idea of you being able to serve only yourself and not anyone else. It's it's one of those like it is a temptation. It is a very easily easy slope to start sliding down. Um, and it always seems like a good thing. And it always seems in the short term that you're going to be happier doing it. Um, skipping out on your evening with friends to go hang out on your own and watch YouTube videos always sounds like it's going to be a more fun thing. But 
at the end of the night, you're alone watching YouTube videos instead of being with friends. Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, the analogy of uh, ruling in hell, it kind of like creating your own hellscape is, uh, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate rejection of the cross, right? The, the idea of dying to ourself and living for something greater. It's kind of the, ironically, I think it's kind of the peak endpoint of the Enlightenment. The idea of the ultimate self-service rather than the submission to a higher cause or a higher power or a higher system of government or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think it's it's the ultimate rejection of the other and the ultimate embrace of the self that kind of leads to this dystopian hellscape. Um, and, and I think it's kind of, if anything, it is proof of the chief, you know, the, the fall and the, and, and the original sin, right? So Chesterton has this quote, um, and I'm having to go from memory because I can't find it, that basically modern man denies the disease which all of the ancient philosophers were seeking a cure for. Basically that post-enlightenment, we're now pretending that we're not sick rather than trying to find the cure for our sickness. Um, and that he goes on further to say that poetry is is that the most sane men are in insane asylums because they live in a world of infinite reason that observes no reality. I also think that the anxiety of that, you know, denial of sickness, and there's all sorts of places where you can see it and, and, and you can talk about it. But what you were talking about is, you know, just seeing the darkness of our own selves reflected back at us. AI, I think, being something that I don't think could ever be conscious. What we hope to find there, we we hope that it could be conscious so that it could be something other than ourselves to talk to because we're always trying to find that. And other people just aren't good enough for us. But we want to find something outside of ourselves, outside of God that we refuse to uh, believe in or talk to. And we want to find that something else and talk to that and look into that. But when we look into AI, all we will find is the darkness of ourselves again. It actually puts in mind uh, Walker Percy's uh, why, is, why is Carl Sagan so lonely and looking for extraterrestrial life? Um, but another thinker that I very much admire, David Foster Wallace, um, this, this strikes me as two of his um, major notes that he would hit. The first that, um, the first and kind of foremost, you have to find something outside of yourself to, to submit to. It is hell for you. You will, he, in This Is Water, he has the great quote, you'll die a thousand deaths before they finally b bury you if you're serving yourself. Um, and his second note that he hit over and over in Infinite Jest was that entertainment industry will kill us. Um, and it, the, the main uh, MacGuffin in Infinite Jest is an entertainment so entertaining, it will kill you. You'll watch it over and over and over again um, until you finally starve to death. And if I recall correctly, I think a friend of mine was saying that uh, most critics or he, there's either like an interview with him describing what he thinks the um, the 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 um, MacGuffin would be, or it was most critics uh, attribute it. But regardless, um, the consensus is that it would be virtual pornography, um, which I don't know ties in quite nicely with our our previous discussion. But in any case. David Foster Wallace really, he really was visionary in this. Um, he saw a culture that was getting more and more obsessed with entertainment and more and more atomistic and more and more unwilling to submit something outside of itself. Um, and it's, it's sad that he's not around because I think he would be a voice that would be very well posed to at least ask the right questions, if not provide some of the answers for our current situation. Would you say that a culture like that might be stuck? 
or perhaps refined? I would say that, which is quite the transition, Brevin. Well done. Uh, yeah, so this is just sort of a one one final little uplifting note I figured that we'd, that we'd end on after, uh, you know, talking about how AI is the anti doom us all, uh, to stare into the abyss and find only ourselves, which is the last thing that we hope to find. Uh, and just a couple posts talking about some interesting ideas that I think tie quite well into um, this whole idea of AI, because there, there's, you know, because ChatGPT is based on all of the texts that it can read, which is more specifically all of the texts that have been written from current or wherever it's currently generated from 2021 into the past. Same with the art. All the art takes from everything that's been made up to this point and then into the past. So the question is, what does that mean for a culture where the thing that is generating forward AI, in this case, Dolly, ChatGPT, is based on things that are all from the past? It, it, it seems that there it could only accelerate trends uh, that we're seeing that people have observed uh, under a couple different terms. But one would be stuck culture, which you know, one can talk about by noting, for example, that in 2016, half of the top 50 movies released were a remake or a sequel, uh, which is a 312% increase since 2000. What was the top movie of the past year? It was a Top Gun sequel, for example, Avatar 2. Once again, we are perpetually stuck in like the mid 2000s, which is just a fantastic place to be in. Uh, And the other aspect of this uh, that I believe Stephen wants to riff on a little bit before we move out is refinement culture and that everything is starting to look the same. And there's very interesting examples of this from sports where, uh, for example, in the NBA, shots taken used to come from all over the court or at least four different places on the court. Nowadays, if you look at all the shots that are taken, statistically, they all come from the exact same places. People are getting better and better, more and more refined, more and more algorithmic. Uh, In soccer, it's the same thing. The percent of shots taken outside of the box continues to decline over time. It's being refined. It's being turned into Moneyball. Everything is becoming Moneyball. But Stephen, I pass it over to you uh, to close this out. There is something almost kind of sad uh, about that whole thing. Um, For example, I I think of chess when it comes to that. Um, And I recall an interview, I think, with Bobby Fischer, who I think is considered the best player of all times and ended up hating chess. And when asked about it, said pretty much all it is right now is you're just trying to memorize. You're just trying to memorize every single possible move that the engine can give you. And there's no joy in it anymore. There's no art. There's no human. There's no humanity in it. Um, And it it, kind of, it, it brings to mind like the idea of playing a video game and kind of sucking at it. Part of the fun is that you suck at it and you're getting better at it and you're just kind of figuring out on your own versus I look at, um, I used to play a lot of League of Legends um, and I'm now, I think, three years clean. I uh, thank God. <laughs> um, Do you get a but, coin like, for that? I think I should. <laughs> um, and, but, but, but like, sincerely, I kind of enjoyed being an amateur at it because I, I every so often I watch the pros just because it is kind of fun to watch the pros, but there's almost something sad about watching the pros in that there's something so clean about it. There's something so mechanical and precise that it almost looks like just two machines p- playing each other. And I, I like even looking at like old school baseball versus modern baseball or old school basketball versus modern basketball, there's just something too mechanical about it that kind of saps the humanness out of it. And it it is kind of an unfortunate trap that we've fallen into of 
because there's so much money being pumped in, because there's so much incentive to be the absolute best, you start just going algorithmic rather than going human. And there's something kind of tragic. Actually, so Brevin knows this, um, but I used to compete in Yu-Gi-Oh! Um, so I went to a couple of tournaments and did all of these things. And there's this big thing in the Yu-Gi-Oh! community, they call them Yu-Gi Boomers, um, because they're people who miss when the game was more simple and didn't have all these different mechanics and all of these things. And they have this uh, old format where it's like, I think 2005 and prior are the only cards that are allowed. They call it the GOAT format. And I was thinking one time, you know, that actually sounds kind of fun. I'm going to go back and I'm going to bring my old cards and I'm going to try to play it. And there were only like two or three decks, like builds that people would would run at these tournaments because it's already been cracked. They, people already know what the best strategies are because there's nothing left to discover. And you see that a lot with like online games like MMOs, like, you know, The Old Republic or World of Warcraft or, or um, several of the other MMOs that I've, I've played in the past where once a meta is established, everyone is so focused on getting to that meta that you're not having fun anymore. You're just trying to compete. And I think there are a slim number of people who actually do enjoy that competition, but the rest are just trying to get there so that they can get back to actually enjoying the game, which by the time they get there, they're not actually going to enjoy it because they're going to find out the way that they like to play isn't the most optimized for the numbers that they're trying to put up. And I, I think that that feeds a lot of our nostalgia, too, going back to the movies and the things that, like, the, all the recreations we've seen, is that we, we kind of long for a time where we had mystery and wonder about the things we haven't discovered. It's like, I think of, like, like think of, like, America, like, the New World, right? Everyone was so excited to get over from Europe to the New World. They thought it was so cool, all these new places to go, new things to explore. And now we come over here, and the more exciting trips are the ones where you leave the United States and go somewhere else. Probably somewhere that you might have come from, you know, a thousand years ago, because it's different and new and exciting. Um, but if you lived your life just bouncing across the Atlantic Ocean, it's not going to be exciting to go to either of those places because you've already done it. You know what I mean? You don't have that sense of wonder and newness anymore. And I think that's what leads to a lot of like the cynicism that you see um, with people is that they, they haven't, they've stopped discovering new things to be awed by. Yeah, it, it, it really is too bad. Like I just remember going on a ferry and just being like deeply sad that there was just no chance that I was going to get scurvy and die. I was like, I, that's something that I've just never had in my life. I've just never experienced, you know, that, that terrible fear of, of, you know, catching cholera from drinking, you know, random water from like a beautiful looking Virginia river. And just, I just, you know, it's, it's really something that we've left behind that we've lost. If you ever really, if you really ever really hate yourself, Google cholera, not cholera, Google uh, scurvy, what it actually looks like when someone has it. All your scars open up because the vitamin C is what maintains scar tissue. So if you don't have vitamin C, if you had like surgery anywhere and you have a scar, it'll open up. So that's a fun, oh, ex- gosh. that's a fun experiment. Imagine peg leg Joe with scurvy, man. He's just bleeding out all over the place. Yeah. So have fun. And in the spirit of Dave Foster Wallace, I will take uh, Chase's comments seriously. Unlike some people, Brevin. And, uh, so I, I had a very similar experience. I, I didn't do uh, Yu-Gi-Oh, but I did magic. Or uh, Magic Gathering. It's a it's a card game. Nerd. And ha- I know, right? Hands down, the most fun I had was building the super budget, you know, 
really, really cheap decks back in college when I had no money and everyone was just kind of discovering the game for the first time. And so we were all trying these like super zany builds that would never work in actual competition. And then I tried going to a couple of competitions and it, it, it really is kind of boiled down to a science. It's always the same kind of five or six standard formats mm -hmm. that or standard deck archetypes, the meta. And those are the ones the pros do, and therefore everyone does them because they're boiled down to a science. And they're it's just it's joyless. Um, yeah, the joy of discovery. Uh, I think McGilchrist would apply this sort of uh, criticism to like this: the joy of discovery is the right hemisphere, and then the left hemisphere kind of comes and takes over and mechanizes the whole thing. And he would say that this is this is a symptom of the left hemisphere having gone too far and mechanized everything. Um, and there's something in, inherently joyless about that. It is true. There's truly no joy in beating the 87 millionth person with the epic deck build, one squirrel, two squirrel, a million squirrels, the only viable green deck build in existence. Shut up, Brevin. <laughs> I made a seven-year-old cry at a, at a YCS one time, and uh, that's my lowest point, and that's part of the reason I left Yu-Gi-Oh! was because he showed up very excited with his Blue Eyes deck, and I uh, Brevin's played against my Virtual Royal deck on Master, on Master Duel. Um, yeah, he played me with like a standard 2005 Yu-Gi-Oh deck and, um, the kid didn't make it past round. Like he didn't get a second turn. I didn't let him draw. So th that was, Oh um, my gosh. Well, I mean, if you're going to show up to a competition, man, strap in, it's going to be, you know, I'm not here to, you yeah. know, I told him, I was like, look, I'm just going to play you like a regular player, man. And he was like, no, I want you to, I want, I have some tricks in my deck. I activate my trap card. You triggered my trap card. Power balance. I was like, eh, negate. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just curbed up to seven. No, I mean, to be fair, that, that is what I've seen in yeah. most card game especially like series it's don't take it easy you're just prolonging the torture just make it clean just just, like, just, just finish them yeah. yeah sorry bro your trap card means nothing to me god well i'm never letting you play games with my kids no nope. uh, you should speaking of games steven i believe you have a game for us i do so we'll end all of this apocalyptic imagery and super <laughs> depressing ai is going to consume humanity and we'll be left in this huxleyan sludge of a society we're gonna conclude it with hey i asked uh chat gpt to write me a paragraph instructing me how to make a ham sandwich get back in here and make me a sandwich first person to raise their hand and guess who it is gets the point and it's going to be first to four points uh so pause here in the spirit of competition i think should we minimize it or both have it up in front of us the list of possible options what do you think i think list because i don't know who have i haven't read half of these people so and camus judas yeah, you know what just just go with all of them and i'm gonna guess and it's gonna be terribly wrong so it doesn't bother okay. me i don't i'm not i don't get competitive this isn't tech so i don't really care about it so. <laughs> this isn't Yu-Gi-Oh, and you're not playing a seven-year-old <laughs> my instruction write me a paragraph about how to make a ham sandwich in the voice of blank round one rolling to find what making a ham sandwich are you kidding me i have three kids to take care of and a million other things to do but i guess it has to be done let's see do we have any bread left oh come on who didn't put the bread back in the pantry and where's the ham did we finish it all and I see Chase. Uh, I'm going to go with a frustrated and sleep-deprived mother of three. I, I'm afraid not. I'm going to guess a frustrated and sleep-deprived father of three. 
because a mother would know where the food is. That is correct. Okay. Well done. Round, round two. So, like, if you're trying to make a ham sandwich, I guess it's pretty easy. But, like, why are we even talking about ham sandwiches, you know? Like, we're living in a world full of problems and challenges, and all we can focus on is sandwiches? But okay, I guess if you really want to do it, okay, Chase. Uh, disenfranchised millennial. That is correct. Yeah, that's from the likes. That was, yeah, that was, that was too slow. Okay, round three. A ham sandwich? Such a small thing for one of my grandeur, but I suppose it's worth a try. Let's see. We need some bread, ham, cheese, and mayo? I don't believe I've ever heard of such a thing. Bread. I'm going to guess dragon. That is correct. A dragon? What? Because a dragon's not going to know what mayo is. And chat AI does? <laughs> chat GPT does? <laughs> Round four. Making a ham sandwich is a fundamental expression of your individualism and your right to pursue your own self-interest. But yes. Leech. Close. Brethren, Rand. You got oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be yeah, fair, they're, they're basically knew, the same. I knew I should have read Atlas Shrugged. I know you probably. I mean, she's pretty much the female reboot of of Nietzsche. Is she a little less or more Nazi? Uh, A little less. Ah, that's less funny. But only just. (laughs) Okay, round. I've lost track. What is this? Five. five. Also, I hope both of you are. What is it? Three one. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's three one. Three one. Okay. All right, dear friends. To make a ham sandwich is to participate in the miracle of creation. The ham, the bread, and the condiments are all gifts from our creator. And it is our, yes. Francis? Chase. Oh, Francis? You, you got oh, it. Finally back in this somewhere. Miracle creation. <laughs> I mean, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, you know, to an extent. Listen, he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Round six. Let me tell you, folks. Nobody makes a ham sandwich like I do. Believe me, it's the best ham sandwich you'll, yep. Breath. It's got to be Trump. Oh, 100%. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right my wife texted me and i didn't i wasn't listening oh all right oh no yeah, it's her fault we can redo that one i'll redo I'll, I'll redo round six all right okay let's see what's a fun? well if you want to make a ham sandwich it's real simple first off you got to start you got to get yourself some bread preferably two slices of white bread if you like the fancy stuff go ahead and use some whole wheat or sourdough then grab a few slices of ham and lay them on one of the slices of bread. If you want to add some cheese, now's the time to do it. Then put the other slice of bread on top of the ham and cheese. That's it. You got yourself a ham sandwich. Oh, and don't forget mustard and... Yes, Brett. Is it Morgan Freeman? I'm afraid not. Oh, and don't forget the mustard and mayo. Unless you're one of those weirdos who likes their sandwich plain. Now hurry up and eat it before it gets oh, cold. Oh, I know what it is, but I use my guess. Chase. Uh, a drunk SNL writer, maybe? I don't know. Oh, grumpy yet lovable grandpa? Grandpa. It it was it was a grandpa, but I'm gonna sorry, I'm gonna DQ you for it. I mean we'll we'll do another. Let's see here. Round seven. Round seven. Making ham sandwich is an act of profound significance. Footnote. This assertion is not intended to be hyperbolic or exact yes. Tolkien? Uh, I'm afraid not. Footnote. This assertion is not intended to be hyperbolic or exaggerated, but is rather a sincere attempt to illustrate the deep significance that everyday acts can have when approached with mindfulness and intentionality. End footnote. One that requires us to confront the fundamental existential questions of our time. Footnote. In an age marked by a pervasive... Yes, Brett. David Foster Wallace. Of course it's David Foster yeah, Wallace. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Okay, it looks like Brevin takes it. Yeah, no, he took it a long time ago. It was like me at a YCS with a seven-year-old. It was just murder. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I've accomplished some vengeance on his behalf. And you know, they say that vengeance is a 
dish best served cold. Uh, but sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you just want to rage. And when one rages, one might rant. Uh, so let's go to rants. Uh, I'll take the first one, and mine is very short. Uh, we recently, after a very long and extended period, got our water damage floors replaced. Now we have a beautiful, nice, new, clean floor, which has just clued me into the fact that I can never allow myself to buy new things. Because anytime there is a smudge on that floor, anytime I notice debris, anytime there is any imperfection on the vast expanse of this entire house that I live in, I just, I, I need to fix it. I need to clean it. I can see it. It's right there. There's the mark. There's the, there's, there's, there's the food. I, I got to clean it up. And, you know, when you have a toddler, this is uh, not terribly viable because they're just making messes all over the place and you have to learn to live with the filth. Uh, but when you, when you have something so new like this, it's all very obvious, which just goes, you know, I can't even imagine if I got a car and I started to see it get dirty or get a ding, I would just be apoplectic. So what I have learned is, and this is a lesson for all others like me, don't buy new stuff. Buy old stuff. You won't notice when it gets dirty, when it gets broken, and plus probably something about conservation and recycling. I don't care about that. It's mostly just for your own uh, mental well-being. A rant over. Uh, uh, Steven, what's your rant? Yes, I have a, a rant. Um, similar to uh, my situation with uh, the Daryl Brooks trial and that I ran down like a three-week rabbit hole with that one. The YouTube gods dictated today that I will listen to Bill Mayer. And I listened to a goodly amount of content of Bill Mayer. And I was actually stunned by my admiration. Um, this is a man who is deeply anti-religious. Uh, very... I would say classically liberal, like 2000s liberal. And in a similar way to Christopher Hitchens, I, I, I actually started viewing him as Christopher Hitchens 2.0 in that I fundamentally disagree with Hitchens on a number of things, but I can't help but admire the honesty and the authenticity. Um, Hitchens, for all of his flaws, always of, the, all, of all the four horsemen came across as the most sincere in that like he was clearly appalled by a lot of the ills that religion caused and therefore was speaking out against it, but would also turn around and lambast pretty much anyone that crossed that sort of line. And similarly, Bill Mayer, it's amazing, like listening to his stuff 10 years ago versus listening to his stuff now, he's saying the same thing over and over and over again. He was lambasting conservatives, rightly so, for a lot of their ills. He was lambasting religious people, maybe a little less rightly so, but like, especially when he was calling them out on their hypocrisy. Bravo, well done, they deserve it. And now he's calling out uh, the, the more liberal party for their, like the things that they should rightly be called out for. And so I find myself surprised to say, especially for a man who wrote the movie Rel Religious and was like actively ridiculing, and to be fair, still is actively ridiculing religious people. I find myself weirdly um, kind of admiring him. So well done, Bill Mayer. I respectfully disagree with you on a number of things, but keep up the good work. Uh, keep up the, uh, the authenticity. That's honestly not where I expected that to go at all. Uh, but Chase, your rant. Yeah, that took a turn. I was expecting something way funnier. No, you're right. Um, yeah, so my thing um, is not complaining about free software. So let's talk a little bit about development and the, the development cycle. So when a developer encounters a problem, generally, go ahead. What you got, Steve? Is it is this where babies come kind from? Of. Okay. Um, <laughs> it generally, if they encounter a problem, they will go to fix it. Right. If they want to have a baby, they first get a wife. If they want to make a apple pie, you got to first create the universe. Um, that's a Carl Sagan quote. If anybody didn't pick up on that. 
But oftentimes, developers will, will see a problem and they'll think, I cannot be the only person to have encountered this, right? Like, I want to play an MMO, but it shut down 10 years ago. I'm going to rebuild it, right? Great. Awesome. The problem that I have is that naturally these projects or these products or these things that people push out, generally de developers, if they come across like a simple solution or if it's something that like for whatever reason they can't monetize or they can't make money from it, they'll just give it away because they're like, I wanted to play this game, so I want other people to be able to play this game with me. And people consistently complain about the free thing that someone else has put hundreds of hours into building for them. And it blows my mind the toxicity of people who complain about the thing that nobody is getting paid to build for them. So I was a, a developer slash manager for this uh, project that I will not mention because if Disney finds out about it, they'll shut it down because Disney doesn't enjoy fun and children's smiles. Um, they basically, one of my duties was running the email for support. So people needed it. I ran the statistics and 75% of the support emails, meaning for people who are trying to reach out and say, Hey, I actually have a legitimate problem. I can't log in. My account's acting up or I'm falling through the floor and I'm in the pit of hell of unity. And I don't understand how I got here. Like apart from those actual, you know, realistic problems that a developer could actually kind of help with the other set, the 75% was complaining that the game was not done yet when it is a team of seven developers rebuilding an MMO from scratch on a free software because none of us can pay for it and paying to rent the server that the MMO is hosted on. I just, it blows my mind. Like, like we were getting like damn near death threats from these guys who want to play a 10 year old game that shut down when I was in high school. Like, there comes a point where you just got to move on, bro. Like, it's not that serious. Um, but yeah, I think the the moral of my story and my frustration is uh, no one should be get, handing out anything for free. And developers, if you are building something, don't share it because the general public sucks. Yeah, that's kind of my, my big hot take. I was really annoyed with that. All right. Uh, well, I do believe we will... End it there. That's right. The general public sucks. Uh, and with that message, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Chase. And we will see you in a AI-dominated help. Tell me now. So we didn't mention Tay AI. We should have brought up Tay AI. Yeah, uh, yeah. The AI bots trained Cooper. to be a Nazi. Why did we not bring that up? <laughs> Gosh, that was glorious. Damn it. Uh, I, I like I. I that, that was what 2017. I don't know. I saw an internet historian thing on it, and it was yep, hilarious. Yep. Yeah, I yeah I just I just watched that as as well.